Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today we're going to be talking about the book, The Hindus of Hindustan. And I have my absolute honor and pleasure to once again have, and this time I'm really happy because this is my first in-person podcast with ma'am. And uh, uh, if there were ever was an admirer of Meenakshi, ma'am, it is me. So ma'am, thank you very much for coming and congratulations on your new book. Thank you for having me. Every time that I've come on your podcast, the sales of my book have increased so much thank you you know the kind of publicity that a podcast gives to a book it's uh, very difficult for a non uh, his you know person who has not written the book to visualize so i'm really honored and happy that i'm at your podcast and as you said this is the first live podcast that we are having yeah ma'am acha mere ko aap se ye puchna tha ki so you know it's interesting the back page also has the other books jaise vasudev krishna and mathura flight of deities battle for rama rama and ayodhya and sati uh, interestingly maine sari padhi hai aapki book ke books woh sari and and even the the volumes that you had written on the you know the visitors the india they saw the india they saw but jaise aapne mere ko offline bhi bola tha ki this book took a lot of time to prepare uh, if i remember aapne mujhe phone pe bola tha kushal mujhe 7 saal lage iske liye and also you you personally love this book a lot so let's start there why why so so why do you think so uh, you know it's more than 7 years actually uh, i knew that i wanted to write this book was not sure about the way to go about it so i did a lot of reading over the years and i went on making notes on my computer i knew that it it's like a jigsaw puzzle at some point it will all fit in and uh, about 3 4 years ago i got a senior fellowship from icssr that is the indian council of social science research and that's when i thought let me now start putting it together so 2 years of that fellowship uh, gave me enough time to have a rough draft ready and after that uh, you know more than a year to finalize it so it has been a long journey but i think it is my most fulfilling work because uh, you know so many ways that indian history has been belittled if i can use that word uh, i present a different perspective which i think will be an interesting uh, alternative to people who read this book so ma'am if i was to start with this first question what when you designed this book and you wrote it if somebody was to ask you what was the overarching theme yes that you had in mind so let's start with the theme and then let's get into the content yes you know as a student of history and as a person who taught history for a long time i was given the impression i'm not saying that it was deliberate but the curriculum and the syllabus and the teachers who taught it i got the impression the back country's history is a history of fragments it is a history of divisions it is a history of oppression and it is a history of you know fragmentation all along so there is no emphasis on the underlying unity of the civilization the people were they always at war were we always having oppression of the males on the females uh, the upper caste the a uh, lower caste so it was a history that never inculcated a sense of identification with the past you know it seemed like a past that really did not belong to us it was a 
image of a past that was deliberately cultivated. Uh, it began in the colonial period when the British rulers, they did not want us to have a great view of our past. Unfortunately, after independence, that colonial view of our past was perpetuated in the garb of an ideology uh, by a section of our historians. And, uh, you know, this will always trouble uh, people who are passionate about their own history, their own country, and its various ups and downs. So this, I began to study this, and I was so totally amazed and enlightened, in if I can use that word, about how actually different our past was. And you know, uh, the main theme of my book, if I can identify one theme, it is the fundamental unity of India. And why is it, why do I call it the fundamental unity of India? Because it was not a unity that was thrust down from top. It was a unity because the people at the lowest level of society contributed so much to this culture, to this civilization, which is why it is a fundamental unity. And can I give one example? Sure, sure, ma'am. Uh, for example, you know, Mathura is a very important center of Indian Ji. art, civilization, etc. And in Mathura, images were first made in Mathura for the Buddhist Jains and what later came to be known as Hindus. But before the images began to be made, there was this tradition among the Jains of making, you know, small uh, tablets like a mobile phone that size or even smaller, ayak pattas. These were called tablets of homage. Now, a large Mathra was devastated so many times. So whatever has survived is only fragments. We've not got the whole picture of Mathra. But at this Kankana Tila at Mathura, excavations by British archaeologists in the colonial period unearthed many of these Ayagpattas. Most of them had inscriptions on them. The inscriptions detail who was the person who donated that Ayagpatta, what was the profession of that person, what was the family to which that person belonged. And it is so heartening to note that 95% of the Ayagpattas were donated by women. And so, you know, all this time that we go on hearing about suppression of females, I'm not going into the historicity, whether it's wrong or right, but I'm talking about evidence which presents a counter view. So, you know, and who are the people who donate the Ayagpattas? They, they are women from all sections of society. Someone is the wife of a dancer. Someone is the wife of a merchant. Someone is a nun. So, you know, when you look at this picture from below, you find that the reason for the fundamental unity of India is because everyone is contributing to that unity. And th that matters a lot. But uh, I, I find uh, the framing of chapters very interesting. If you don't mind me, well, 
so why did you start with mapping of the landscape now now when when you say mapping it's very different from what diana x says because i want to create a contrast so when diana x in her book talks about the geography of india she actually literally does not mean the physical geography she says it there is a spiritual geography then she maps it indirectly onto a spiritual in a physical manner but in your chapter you actually you start with you know actual quotations from texts like uh, the shatapata brahmana says yeah. something the rigveda says something the manusmriti says something about the geography now how do we how do we consider so so at this point of time if i was to ask you this question so what was bharat for these people see it's a very important question that you've asked i have begun by stating that the founders of our civilization when the indian civilizational journey began the whole of the subcontinent was by no means known, known to everyone because of the vastness of the subcontinent the limited means of communication but i have said that it is possible to trace the physical expansion of the geography you know from the rigved where the rigved is talking about only Uh, that nadi sukta is only talking about northwestern india and punjab oh, yeah from there people moved to eastern india which you can trace in the shatpat brahmana for example you have the stories of agastyamuni traveling down so what i'm saying is that we have to begin with acknowledging that the whole landmass of the subcontinent was not known to the forefathers or the framers of our civilization when the civilizational journey began that's yeah. point number 1 yeah. second point is that wherever these people went they were not a barren land that they went to people were already living there and the story of india is how the people who were living there were assimilated included and made an integral part of the indian civilization that is my first point i say that by 500 bc the whole of the subcontinent was largely known to the framers of our civilization and very interesting proof of that comes about 200 years later when alexander invades india and he comes to punjab he defeats he meets amphi king amphi and uh, porus and after that he does not go further why does he stop and retreat yeah, so this that in the book this is such an interesting uh, piece of evidence and it is recorded by historians and people who accompanied alexander you see it seems that alexander realized that he is lost he thought he was near the nile and will go up to the and go back home but then he meets people and he realizes that he doesn't know where he is so the people who accompanied alexander they say that alexander asked the people who were there to describe the country as they knew it 
and the description that his informers gave them is recorded in the accounts of Greek historians. So that information is available to us. And Alexander Cunningham, 2000 years later, Alexander Cunningham was the first director general of the Archaeological Survey of India. So 2000 years later, he looks at the information that is recorded by Alexander's historians in his accounts, and he measures the distance from this place to the this place, this place to this place. And he says it is amazing how accurate the information was. So, I mean, this speaks, all this should tell us something about the deep involvement and association with this land. Because, you know, I mean, if common people knew in the area that Alexander was that this is the distance. Yeah. And uh, what is fascinating also is that Alexander then also realized that this is too big a land for me to capture. Absolutely. I better get my act together. I can't capture the whole damn thing. This, Absolutely. this is too big for this me. This is too big. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very interesting. Now, th this has to be a very... Uh, because this is, again, I don't know how to say it, overly discussed, the notion of Aryavarta. Mm. Because the terminology itself is for so much discussion and so mm. charged. Mm. Now, different people understood Aryavarta in, in uh, Indological circles. Mm. Like the classical Aryavarta understanding in Indological circle is through, there is some outside land. These were the Aryans who came in and they had this understood Aryan land and mm. this is what they mm. called. Mm. So now what is the notion of Aryavarta? So this was described first by Patanjali. Yeah. And he describes, he identifies the exact area of Aryavarta, which is part of northwestern India. He gives the rivers and the lukil. And that definition of Aryavarta as a geographical space is uh, endorsed and continued by the early Dharmashastra writers. Now, what is interesting is that we come to Manu and we get a detailed description of this. Manu divides up to the Vindhyas. He says the land between the Saraswati and the Drishadvati is the most sacred land. It is the land of the gods. Then he says that the area after that which is most sacred is the land that has been created by the rishis. And then he comes to Madhya Desh and then he finally comes to up till the Vindhyas and that is Aryavarth. Now this is the definition how it is expanding from the first definition of Patanjali up till the time of Manu. But the definition does not end there. The, the writers and the you know, framers of these concepts, like Medhatiti. Medhatiti says, land itself is not impure. The land itself is not impure. How can we extend? We can extend by, by enforcing or bringing or implementing the social system of Aryavarth to the rest of India. He doesn't use the word India, but to 
you know, large parts of the subcontinent, which means that the concept of Aryavarth is not a static concept. And by the time we finish, it includes the whole of India. But what is very important, I'm glad you brought up the Medhati bit because that is the part of the Malaysia region could be turned into Aryan land. Yes. That is the bit you're talking yes. about in yes. your book. Yes. That tells us that these people were expansionists, which is very unlike the image that is put that we were sitting alone, we didn't say anything to anyone. And here we to I don't... Uh... Approve of the word expansionist. But I'm not I'm not using it in a negative no, way. No, no, but using I it would in a neutral say, way. But I would prefer the word all embracing. Okay, fair enough. They didn't try to exclude anyone. And the including every region also. So to, to use modern day parlance, you know, this is the Hindu frontier mentality. Uh the, that the Americans have these days. When I read that bit, I was like, damn, these people wanted to expand. It's not expansion. As I said, it's all inclusive, including everybody. Now, uh, you cannot uh, say that, you know, Red Indians, what the Americans did for the Red Indians. I mean, can you replicate that over here? Or did you try to replicate Yes. That? Not at all. So, so the difference between our uh, increase of uh, kingdom and their increase of kingdom. In fact, I, I get reminded of this very good bit in Jaggi's book also, who mm. I just spoke to, R. Jagannathan. And Jaggi also said the difference between us and them has been that uh, us being the non-monotheist and them being the monotheist, uh, to, be for, to be absolutely clear, is that when a non-monotheist goes into a monotheistic land, they tend to not interfere in their practices. In mm. fact, they digest their practices and they make their practices their own. Mm. And he uses the examples which are there in your book also, mm. in, the, in the sense that, uh, you know, different people came into India. The Greeks came into India. Everybody, you know, like Thomas Machiavelli has shown how Indians took over Greek habits too, in many occasions. And the the Kushanas have, the other others have come in India. Multiple people have come in India and we just made them our own. No, I, I won't say that we made them our own. They found it so compelling that, that they, they embraced yes. it. Because if they came as rulers, many of these people you say, you have mentioned, actually began to rule over parts of northwestern India. Yes. So if they were ruling over parts of northwestern India, the ordinary people did not go out, out to change their thinking or to force them to give up their old ways and accept the ways of the subcontinent. It, I, In fact, I'm glad you uh, raised this point. Uh, for the ancient period, you know, we had uh, parts, in fact, large parts of northwestern India and Shakas even in Gujarat and Maharashtra. Yes. Uh, but the way, I mean, I don't like to use the word Indianize, Indianization, but that is so apparent so fast in the case of all these dynasties that ruled over India at that time. Yeah, they, be they became absolutely native. They became absolutely native in the sense that the first inscription in Sanskrit, the Junagadh inscription is by Rudradaman Shaka. Yeah. yeah the Satvanas were a Brahmin dynasty. They were using Prakrit at that time. And Rudradaman Shaka uses Sanskrit and he writes Kavyas in Sanskrit and he takes great pride in his 
mastery over Sanskrit. Yeah. You know, and uh, since we talked about, uh, and I had mentioned the Sahatvanas, I would also like to uh, clarify that, you know, uh, we hear of the rigid caste-bound society. The Shatvanas were Brahmins. They had matrimonial alliances with the Shakas who had come from outside. Mm -hmm. And there is also on record of them having married into Naga families. So, you know, this whole perception of India really needs to be looked at, re-looked at from another gaze. Now, one bit which is on page 48 that I think it's a very important cultural uh, you know, when discussion. you're quoting passages, pages, I'm getting nervous. <laughs> because... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm Customs of all people accepted. This is very important. I want to I wanna read some bits on this. Please. So you say an examination of the early Dharmashastras showed that it was not the Vedas, but community standards that prevailed in different regions and communities that were taken to constitute Dharma. This is O-level. The Dharma Shastras recorded and accepted the customs of all peoples, whether they agreed with them or not. They clearly stated that the customs of the Shudras were Dharma for them. The liberal acceptance of local practices resulted in their eventual inclusion within the mainstream of society. Vashishta, for instance, clearly stated, and I quote, Where there, when there are no specific rules in Vedic texts, Manu has said that one may follow the laws of one's region, caste, or family. This is Olival. The early texts on dharma mentioned Desha dharma, Jati dharma, Kula dharma, the dharma of regions, castes, and families' lineages. That was an acknowledgement that the sources of dharma were multiple and varied. Yadnivalke clearly stated that when a king conquered a territory, he should ensure that the customs of that area were protected. He should not enforce the customs of his region on the subjugated land. This last bit I wanted to read because this no, is the I most important No, I want to add one thing. thing to what you have said. Uh, Earlier, we had discussed the fundamental unity of India. Hanji. And I had said that every section of society was contributing to that. They were participating in, in that. And unity was not imposed from top down. And this, this point that you have raised just now reinforces my earlier point, which means that whatever your customs, however small a group you are, However lower down in the hierarchy you may be, there will be no attempt made to impose the customs, traditions, laws of somebody above you. And uh, this Arthashastra, Kautilya in the Arthashastra, mentions all these Jati Dharm, Kul Dharm, Raj Dharm, Nagar Dharm, the Dharm of merchants. You know, every guild has its own rules, laws, etc. And these are things that deserve to be brought to popular knowledge. To, you know, because the general impression that we have, or people who are not historians, generally they have this impression that, you know, uh, these dharmashastras were an imposition from above of laws that were uh, dictated by a so-called elite caste or class. But the reality is so much different. And it is this gaze that needs to be rectified. How many people know this? I mean, what we are taught is that there was a dominant caste which was 
all the time trying to thrust its own values and rules on the lesser people. But the evidence is just the contrary. So when we look at it this way, that every society has problems. So uh, it's not like, uh, in fact, there are occasions you have, you know, copiously, uh, you know, <laughs> given inscriptions and proofs that, uh, you know, sometimes even the so-called leftists can also pick up on that and selectively quote and say, aisa hai. but you have never hidden. Like even in your Sati book, I remember uh, one of the first beginning pages, you start with Megasthenes saying, Haan, ye ho hai pe. you know, I, I clearly remember that one of the first 10 pages had it. But how does one have a discussion around these things where it is so charged? Like uh, I am very known to be a very vehement opponent of uh, the caste system as it exists today in India. I, it's not hidden. I mean, I'm kind of known to be a very vocal opponent of it. But I, I also understand these points. But ye discussion kaise kare, ma'am? Because it's a charged up discussion. Ho jata you see, hai. I mean, obviously it is very charged right now. And the uh, indignities to which some of the lower castes are being subjected cannot be condoned by anyone. Yes. You know, and at all, nor am I at any stage saying that the situation today is what it was in the past. The situation has changed and it has changed uh, for the worse. And uh, these atrocities that we read in the papers, they have to be condemned and I condemn. And as an educated person and all educated Indians, would not accept any discrimination against any section of society. And everyone has the right to be treated as a human being, a right to their own dignity, and the right to these fundamental basic freedoms. But uh, in this book, I have not discussed when and why these distortions uh, occurred That was not the, the aim of the book. That, and that is not my period also. Yeah. You see, basically, uh, my period is, uh, you know, the 8th, ninth century. And I have just one or two chapters after that. But I have not discussed when and why these aberrations occurred. Obviously, they occurred. They have. Uh, I mean, and we can see that today also. Uh, but in the period that I have covered, I have not, you know, come across this or at least not dealt with it in a fundamental manner. And since uh, you have talked about the caste system, for the ancient period, I would also like to draw attention of your viewers to some of the ruling dynasties, which should itself tell a tale. Who were the Mauryas? The Mauryas were a low caste group. They're supposed to have been peacock breeders. We don't know what they were, but in any case, they did not belong to the so-called elite caste. Uh, who were the Guptas? They were mer merchant community. It is said that they were merchant community. The Satvanas were Brahmins. So, in the 8th century, we have the rise of the Rajput clans. Yes. Now, who were these Rajputs? According to a mythological account, Rishi Vashisht carried out a yagya on Mount Abu. And he carried, and obviously, this is a 
because Rishi Vashisht was not there at that time. But this says that from that Yajna, four men emerged and they became the founders of four Rajput clans. Now, who were these Rajput clans? They were mostly tribal groups who had been elevated by society to Rajput status. For example, the Gurjars, they were one of the communities that was supposed to have been elevated. The Gurjars, you know, they are cattle breeders, etc. But they were elevated to Rajput status because Hindu society was in need of a sword arm. And many of the tribal communities are excellent archers, etc. The Gurjaras, when they became Rajputs, they changed their name or rather added to their name. They called themselves Gurjara Pratiharas. Yeah, Gurjara Pratihara. Yeah. Now, who's a Pratihara? In the Ramayana, when Kal, time comes to tell Ram your time on earth is over and you have to come back. So when he comes to talk to Ram, Ram says to Lakshman, nobody should enter this room, whoever it is. I'm talking to this and you're not to allow anyone to come. So Lakshman is told you're the Pratihar, you're the doorkeeper. You'll not allow anyone to enter. Kind of a shield. So look at the community. Gurjaras, they take the name Gurjara Pratiharas, that we will not allow anyone to enter. So, these are stories and facets of our past which should be told. So, there is a lesson for us to learn. This is mobility. This is not rigidity. So, if society has become rigid today in the context of certain castes and communities, it needs to drastically revise its views and change as per the demands of the time. Because this is not acceptable. This kind of, you know, oppression of some group is totally against any... Fair enough. Hmm. And another in instance I want to read. This was amazing. This is in a small section in the ending bit of the chapter of Sources of Dharma. You have spoken about the period from 500 BCE to 500 CE, where you basically say the period from 500 BCE to 500 CE witnessed a great influx of foreign groups into the subcontinent. The Mahabharata mentioned Greeks, Parthians, Chinese, Sakas, Huns, Tukhara, and once even the Greek towns Roma and Antaki, Antioquia, which indicated that the bulk of the text as we have it could not have been earlier than circa 100 BCE. However, Rather than take a rigid stance, and this is the most important bit, rather than take a rigid stance against those people, the Mahabharata described them as all-knowing. Mahabharata 830-80, you quote, Sarvatnya, Yavana, Rajan, Suras, Chaiva, Visheshta. This is a very important point that even when invaders come, our mindset is, hey, we can learn things from them. They are also smart. So why not learn from them? And, and, Unfortunately, in the cacophony of noises these days, and 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 I and I think TV debates have made it even worse. Yeah. That uh, you know it that this is like not that I host a podcast, but genuinely podcasts are a blessing because these are the kinds of things that we can take out and you know yes. we can read and we can tell people, boss, ये भी चीजें बोली गई हैं महाभारत में इसकी इसके बारे में क्यों नहीं बात होती है? And uh, you know, Gautama in his Dharma Shastra, 
he says that knowledge has to be accepted from an Arya, Rishi or Malaj. If he has mastery on something, you have to accept it. And uh, uh, there is one other person who says, I think it's Al-Baruni he quotes. Yes, Al-Baruni. He says that Varahmira. Varahmira was a Magai Brahmin who had been brought, I mean, his community had been brought from Iran long time before. And he, you know, he is recognized as a, a great uh, astrologer, planetary movements, etc. And Al-Baruni says that Varam Hira is recognized as a Rishi. He is recognized as a Rishi only because he has mastery over knowledge of a particular field. So this recognition of knowledge was widely a wide feature of society. Anyone who had knowledge deserved and got respect that he should have. It's sort of a system of accepting and appreciating excellence. Yes. Whoever it may come from. Because it really says Arya, Rishi or Malaj. Okay. Now, in this is a very important chapter. I have told you before. Number 7, jo, mm. the first civilization and its continuities. I want last bit. <laughs> Evidence of continuity is dismissed. So you say historian Romila Thapar rejected such indicators, indications of continuity stating, quote, we do not know the religion of the Harappan culture. Professor Dilip Chakravarti views Thapar's reluctance to consider religion as a historical factor in India rather surprising. He preferred the view that the religion of the Indus Valley civilization has lots had lots of elements which later became important in Hinduism, though one could hesitate to put a modern name to it. Now, just to add on this, because as someone who's actually looked at a little bit of archaeology, I'm fascinated by it. I remember reading Bibi Lal also. Bibi Lal Sahib shows how Yogic postures. Yes. I think five or eight, if I remember <coughs> correctly. Mujhe, uh, don't quote me on that, guys. It's either five or eight. I don't remember. Yes, the, the terracottas. Yeah, the terracottas. And he has shared them huh. in the books. Yeah. And they are postures, proper yogic postures. Yeah. And I mean, to make a point like, oh, we cannot definitively say it is religion. I mean, how can we be so naive, man? You see, I mean, it is true that the religion, the Indus people, did not go by the name Hinduism. Yeah, and it that's did not fact. go by any name. Yes, we don't even know the script, right? Yes, we have not deciphered it. But every feature has continuities in later times. Yes, it does. The Shiva seal, what you can call proto Shiva or whatever, the worship of Mother Goddess, tree worship. And so many other things. Namaste bhi hai udha. Namaste bhi hai. Sindhur hai. Sindhur hai. Hmm. And the style of wearing bangles. Hanji. That is still there. Yeah. You know. And Bibi Lal in fact has shown. Uh, he found a field in Kalibangan. And two crops were grown side by side. And he found that same pattern of uh, cultivation in Rajasthan even today. So the kind of continuities, obviously we cannot say that they were Hinduism. But the point is that you cannot dismiss those continued fire yeah. altars. Oh, so I was right. They are five uh, because I just 
pillar is drilled when you're doing the yagya vedic yagya a pillar is erected and the mahabharat also says that when you are going to battle the enemy's attempt is to capture your pillar so that you're denied divine protection i was making the point that the pillar is very central yes and it becomes very central when the armies are marching they take that pillar to for the deity can protect them now when sacred structures began to be made then in front of the structure that pillar would be erected so it is a continuity of that symbol of pillar in the yagyas which is used in the mahabharat by the armies to get the same uh, concept when sacred structures are being made and i've given the example of the caves and i've also given the example of temple principally elora which is cutting across community cutting across community now when you you talk about cutting against against communities i want to add one thing you know uh, there is a uh, impression that has been given that you know uh, the hindu jains and buddhists they were always at war but if you look at the sacred sites where there are only temples of one community for example udaygiri udaygiri was a very sacred site very important site which was developed by chandragupta the gupta ruler ha ji and he was a param bhagavat a devotee of vishnu and cave number 5 has that iconic you know statue but to that cave his minister was a shiva bhakt so constructed the cave in honor of shiva and chandragupta went to that cave which was built and the minister proud that he records that inscription is still there and he says that the emperor came to my king who is a vishnu bhagat is coming to visit the cave of his minister who is a shivat and nearby you have even jain caves so this is one example i can give you so many just give you khajrao the name to everybody uh, the temples in khajrao are actually built by the people on one side are the temples which are built by the kings and the other side built by the ministers who are mainly jains the temples of both the kings the kings built vishnu and shiva temples and the jains ministers temples from outside their construction is the same the stone used is the same 
and outside, you know, Ganesh and all will be found everywhere. So you cannot make out whether it's a Jain temple or a, a king's temple unless you're in because they're so similar. In fact, that can also be proven through your point of culture congruence in the fundamental harmony uh, not just that uh, the most important bit is where you said uh, the intertwining belief systems again this should be read of these things in our culture and which is why you know the second half explains the aberrations very well section b of the book because say this bit of section a is kind of the the prerequisite to get why you have section B in the book. So like over here you say uh, story with the birth of Tirthanka Mahavira were strikingly similar to those of the birth of Vasudeva Krishna. So remember commonalities ka ek aur bahut interesting factors ka where mujhe Ajivikas mein kyo interest hai kyunki mein Charvak hoon. To Charvak aur Ajivikas are and the Adnyanas. Ye teen hai jinke baare mein humein jyada pata nahi hai and in and in fact, uh, Ajivikas are also kind of considered to be a branch of with Jainas and uh, proto-Jainas. But or uh, if I remember correctly, Ajivikas uh, free will pe bhi unke views both interesting hai. Free will pe bhi. Yeah. But ye jo hum commonality baat karte hai, to agar Ajivikas bhi iska part se. So why do you, like, I want to read something here again. At some point, the Ajivikas also had stupas because we were discussing stupas just now. Ajivikas were heterodox school founded by Makhali Goshala in 5th century BCE and he practiced austerities with Mahavira for six years before yes. separating from him. Yes. A passage in the earliest Buddhist canon. Now, very interesting. How do we know about the Ajivikas and him spending time with the, the, the Jaina Guru? Is through a Buddhist source. Yes. And this is why I wanted to read this bit is that don't you think it is very important that there is clear back and forth between all these communities and they are living together is because they keep how do we find the historicity of a person? Yes. We find the historicity of a person, for example, is if this is, others are talking about it. Yes. Right? Yes. Or am I mistaken? No, absolutely. Absolutely. So so why again? My question is that. These cases, how come they are never glad that you raised this point? And I want to add something more to this. You know, I was telling you about images, murtis being made by the same group of make murtis for Jains, Buddhists, and what we later call as Hindus. But the point that I was making was that fundamental unity. Yes. When these artisans or craftsmen were making murtis of Mahavir, for example, what did they have on his chest? They added on his chest what? Srivatsa. Srivatsa is always associated with images of Vishnu. So, you know, this point that there was an attempt even at that level of image making that they should be embracing and including everyone within that framework. And you talked about, you know, at the in the beginning, even the Jains had stupas. You yes. talked about Ajivikas. But the Jains also used to make stupas. And stoop, stoop uh, building, it was a developed tradition in Eastern India where Buddha 
genes evolved and grew. And uh, the story, uh, you know, Kanishk, Emperor Kanishk of the Kushan dynasty, he was a Buddhist. So the story is that once he entered a Jain stupa, thinking it's stupa. Wow. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, offered his whatever he had at the Jain stupa, mistaking it for a Buddhist stupa. So that gives you an idea of how much commonality there was. But I am actually not surprised by this. I'll tell you some personal anecdotes in my life many times because I am known to be dabbling in philosophy as a subject. So many times, you know, young kids or students will message me and tell me that we have to differences उपनिषद उठा के पढ़ लिया हमको तो कुछ समझ में नहीं आ रहा था इतना बड़ा डिफरेंस तो हमको नजर में नहीं आया इसके लिए सो इसको जैसे कहते हैं एक यूज किया था टर्मिनोलॉजी ही कॉल्स इट द नोमोलॉजिकल नेटवर्क ऑफ क्यूमुलेटिव एविडेंस वेयर यू नो यू यू हैव अ चैप्टर ऑन द सेक्रेट लिटरेचर इटसेल्फ दैट सेक्रेट लिटरेचर में भी हमको ये इक्वालिटी और रिस्पेक्ट और एक दूसरे के बारे में बात लाइक वेदर क्रिटिकिंग और वेदर लाइक इट्स नॉट लाइक आवर एंशिएंट एंसेस्टर्स डिड नॉट क्रिटिसाइज ईच अदर आल्सो दे डिड दे डिड ऑल द टाइम अलबरूनी सेज that they are all the time actually disputing on words yeah with each other <laughs> all the time yeah bal ki khalu khad rahe ho log ab ma'am mujhe because almost uh, i think uh, 3 50 minutes ho gaye hain to mujhe second hand hai ji mai ko abhi magar uske pehle i have to ask you this question why did you Like why why is there a part A and part B structured like this? Why? But the because I'll tell you in there is a chapter where you, you they came and were conquered in section A. Yes. And you mentioned Iranians. You mentioned many people uh, in that chapter. Talk about uh, the influx of, of the Hun. Even there is evidence of Mehru Pula. Yeah. You the Huns were very ferocious people. Yeah. And outside India, they had a terrible reputation yes. even in india they were ferocious and inscription was found near gwalior fort which mentioned fort shiva so ask me the why i chose to divide it into two sections two sections actually the answer is already there in what you have asked me <laughs> no but uh, for the benefit and i'm sure this will cross the mind of many people yeah because jaisi book uthai mai ko bhi ye question aaya sabse pehle so you know uh, in the first section that is section a apart from other things i have discussed of foreign rulers or rulers of foreign origin who ruled over northwestern india and went up to gujarat and maharashtra so there is a whole series of plus of that period that i have discussed but the one 
prominent feature is how quickly they took to what I can call Indianization. Within a generation, within one generation, uh, just immerse themselves so completely India at a very advanced age. But even he describes himself in his inscriptions and coins as steadfast in the root of or path of Dharma. You know, so I was giving the example of these people and I, uh, in fact, there is even an inscription from Mathura which talks about a Greek family was really very, very important. So all these people, you know, uh, Melinda, Melinda, he is remembered till a work that was written in that period, questions of, he went around large parts of India in the 8th century, 8th century onwards. We have another group of invaders. What I'm trying to say is that invasion was not peculiar to the medieval period. Before that. Even before that. And I've listed the dynasties. Difference was that the later invaders, they were determined to maintain identity. Living together separately. It's a very that uh, the new normal, you say, uh, in the chapter. No, I. Like I, I think it's a very honest way of explaining together separately, uh, because uh, nobody can deny we live in ghettos in India. There is ghettoization in India. Even we are in a big city, there is ghettoization. Now, where foreigners were frequently admitted to the Bhagwat fold at least by second century BCE, on a two four eighteen, and you say the translation here is the Kiratas, the Hunas, the Andras, the Pulindas, the Pulindas, that's in or Sakas or the Shakas there in bracket it is written sinful yes that that lets the that is the biggest quality uh, the elephant in the room it is the dinosaur in the room talk about. but this is the evidence that I found yeah and it's important for me to state it truthfully yeah most striking in the above discussion was that no forest any belief system on the inhabitants of rather Foreign rulers empathized with or embraced one or another faith that sprang from this soil. And then you follow up was denied admission to the Indic fold. And again, I want to read a bit of this. If outsiders were admitted into the Indic fold earlier, why did that become difficult later? When and why was practice of easy admittance? Albanuni explained the reason for the revulsion of foreigners. Can you share what he yes. says? Uh, you see, as you mentioned right now, there is no evidence of any earlier ruler imposing his or her own value system into the people of the subcontinent. Now, Al-Baruni is a very, very important account that he wrote. He came with Mahmud Ghaznavi. He spent a lot of time studying Indian history, philosophy. He went to travel. He traveled to many places. And his book is a really wonderful study of India. And he says that, you know, why is it that now 
mothers frighten their children at night don't cry because ghazni is coming mm. so the children are frightened to silence by the in, in invocation of the name ghaznavi and he says and he himself explains he gives the reason why he says islam came and then he cites the first example he cites is of muhammad bin qasim who uh, invaded multan and he says you know in that revered statue of the sun he hung a piece of cow's flesh yes and he says that you know after that he describes mahmud ghaznavi um, so many things and he says that the hindus became like atoms of dust scattered in all directions and they hide from us they take shelter because he says that there is nothing left so this explanation has been given by a most perceptive scholar i would call him of that time and an insider and an insider so he says that you know uh, previously they revered knowledge from wherever it came and then islam came and there was no revulsion against foreigners before islam came these are his words and now i'll come to my last chapter so this argument that al-biruni makes which is very compelling argument that you're attacking the sacredness and sacred sites and sacred centers of the people whom you have subjugated and then obviously they cannot have the same feelings towards you Absolutely. as they had towards the kushans etc now the thing is that the problem did not end with the subjugation of parts of northern india that living together separately uh, you see uh, some communities entered the administration of the medieval period because the medieval period needed you know clerks scribes revenue record somebody to maintain so people did enter but the point is that among the important communities that entered were the rajputs now modern historians look upon the mughal rajput marriages as a sign of a syncretic culture and the fact that they were living together and there were no uh, bound you know there were no uh, uh, sharp divisions or lines between them no barriers between them but this is one side of the story the true story is that the mughals never said that rajput blood also flows in our veins jahangir's mother was the son of a rajput mother so by common yardsticks you should have been half rajput half mughal but the mughals always said they took pride in their timurid ancestry and they said they are pure timurids so uh, no persian history that was written in the heyday of the mughals mentioned the emperor's marriages with rajputs that is very surprising if the emperor is getting married to somebody who's Uh, the rajputs were also uh, royal families in their region but these are not mentioned and even more surprising 
is that the Rajputs were very uneasy about these matrimonial alliances. And in their home states, many of them got their local historians to write a counter-narrative. Because they were very troubled. They, they said, they didn't know, how will our future generations judge us? So they wanted to present their point of view. So, for example, Man Singh. Man Singh, you know, was Akbar's close relative and close friend. Yes. Uh, so in Man Singh's court, the history that was written talks about the uh, noble clan of the Kachwahas, how brave they were, how many battles they won. But it never mentions that Man Singh's grandfather had given his daughter, that is Man Singh's sister, in marriage to Akbar. It doesn't mention that. So, uh, obviously, it's, you know, uh, the compulsions of modern-day politics should not idly influence the way we look at the past. And just to cut this, continue this story of matrimonial alliances, when Farooq Siyar, Emperor Farooq Siyar passed away, when he died, then Ajit Singh, he went to the Mughal court and brought back his daughter. Can you imagine? The emperor, his daughter is married to the emperor Farooq Siyar. When Farooq Siyar dies, he goes and brings his daughter out of the Mughal court. And the three Rajput premier houses of Mewar, Marwar, uh, Jaipur, they sign an agreement that in future we will not give our daughters or sisters in marriage. So, you know, the situation is far more complex than what uh, some of us have been led to believe. I think, ma'am, somewhere down the line, at least this is what I gathered. Uh, and because I have myself that at the end of the day, people don't want to accept the fact that somewhere down the line, there is a fundamental schism between monotheism or monopolistic monotheism and uh, the non-monotheistic faiths and those uh, societies that are influenced by certain ideas are going to be the way they are and the ones that were coming previously you know at the end of the day they were not like monotheistic you know but sense. i want to uh, make another point and that is that uh, in the entire 18th 19th and 20th century when Mughal Empire was in decline or had declined, there was no reform movement, what is so-called reform movement in Muslim society, which advocated living in peace with your Hindu neighbor. They all said without exception that maintain your distance and if there are any practices of the Hindus that you are continuing and emulating, you must get rid of them. And give you the example of Sayyid Ahmed Shahid. Now he was waging a war, a jihad. Now logically, the jihad should have been against the British because they were the ascendant power. Absolutely. But he wages a jihad against the Sikhs because it was the tradition that first you have to wage a jihad against the Kafir. Whether it's Kafir or indigenous non-Islamic traditions. So these, I think that, you know, unless you have the courage to confront your past, 
you're doomed to repeat it. Uh, and this was going to be my last closing question before we wrap it up. What did you learn and what should everybody else learn from this journey? It's an individual's journey. Uh, but it has taught me to have tremendous respect and pride in my heritage to become aware and sensitive to the factors that led to uh, you know uh, weakening of this heritage and how important it is for every indian to try to learn from it and to overcome the worst patches of it to bhi ma'am ye book to ho gayi ab agli book kabhi aa rahi hai aapki i think i need a break ha break le lo magar book likho wapas chaliye thank you thank you uh, it was an absolute honor and pleasure to talk to you ma'am aap se baat karke hamesha seekhta hu aur aapki har kitab padhta hu mera record mein aapki har kitab padhi hai and i really thank you and i am really looking forward to your next book thank you so much for inviting me all right guys we'll wrap it up once again go buy this book uh, so in the description of the podcast you'll find a link to buy the book you can also follow minakshi ma'am on twitter i know she barely checks it so so <laughs> i've just joined it 2 3 days ago yeah abhi iske liye mai ko malum hai aur aap aap wo nahi dekhna aap kitabein likho baki hum dekh lenge twitter pe ladne ka kaam hum karenge nahi nahi main nahi karti aap nahi karna and uh, guys so once again buy the book and uh, you know the drill subscribe to the charvak podcast youtube channel like this video leave your comments uh, in the comment section and if you want to support the charvak podcast please become a member on youtube patreon fanmo whatever you like or buy the merchandise on kushalmehra.com or send your donations to upi i'll see you guys next time with another interesting discussions until then namaste take care bye bye